Hello, and welcome to the GSV Ventures podcast, where we will be discussing the age of digital learning that has been kickstarted by the 1.6 billion learners forced online by the coronavirus pandemic. As the world transitions from BC before coronavirus to AD after disease, an enormous catalyst has accelerated the opportunity of the future to today. Join industry leaders, educators, government officials, entrepreneurs, and investors as we explore the AD world. This episode is a fireside chat between Nitin Noria, Dean of the Harvard Business School, and Deborah Quazzo, partner at GSV Ventures. I am uh, totally thrilled to be here hosting this conversation um, with Nitin Noria, who is is truly a remarkable human being and one of my you know, favorite humans in the world. Um, he's been the Dean of the Harvard Business School since July of 2010. We actually did that video in 2014, I don't know if you remember, so it's interesting, you know, it's been a good six years that's passed since that happened. Nitin actually announced his retirement that was going to be coincident with the end of the uh, school year uh, this year. Unfortunately, the end of the school year is never going to happen, apparently. And so um, after his incredible tenure, tenure he, uh, he agreed that with the outbreak of COVID, he would extend his leadership of HBS through the end of this, you know, what will clearly be a very difficult year. Um, I have enough questions to probably go a couple of hours, but we have a, you know, we have a, a short, a short period of time. So I'll try to fit as much content in as I can. Nathan, let me, let me actually start with that video. And, um, you know, I, we laugh when we sent the young people from Road Trip Nation out to do it. They were so taken with you that the first cut of the video was basically a Nathan Noria story and they left everybody else on the cutting room floor. They were so taken with your personal story. But talk about the American dream. How does something like a COVID pandemic um, impact the availability of the American dream? There's a lot of a discussion around equity on the prior panel and really in all the conversations. And and you said it's it's things happen to you that you could not dream was your quote on the video. So I would just love to kind of get your, you know, six years later take on what you think. So Deborah, first and foremost, uh, thank you for having me. And uh, I am so excited to see you looking well and doing well. So I was worried when I heard that you'd had this accident, but it's great that uh, you're here. And uh, the fact that you did this for me means even that much more to me. So uh, thank you very much. And uh, uh, I want to, I'm very grateful to the, seems like 700 participants who are on. I hope uh, I'll prove worthy of, of your time. So look, I, I, I think that this is a moment in which we have already now, since these last six years, uh, the confidence that people had that the American dream is alive and well has been shaken. Uh, it's been shaken as we have seen uh, inequities of so many kinds uh, emerge. Uh, there's a colleague of ours, Rod Chetty, whose work might be familiar to many people uh, who are in this audience, who now finds that you know your zip code is a better determinant of what your life prospects are than anything else you might be able to have done in your life. Uh, I mean, that's the antithesis of the American dreamer. Like I, I didn't grow up in any zip code which was even in America. Uh, and here I am uh, sitting as Dean of our business school with the great privilege of being able to talk to all of you. We need to keep these pathways open. And I think uh, as we've seen in COVID-19, these pathways are becoming more structurally unequal. At some level, there was always some inequality, but the inequality came out of individual determinations, right? Uh, you felt that, yes, some people might apply themselves harder and some people might not, and that would make a difference about 
what they could do with the opportunities that America presented. Now it feels like there are some parts of the world where as hard as you try, as much as you might do, you might have no opportunity uh, to be successful. And that kind of structural deep inequity is something that we should be very concerned about, especially as it comes to access to education, right? So you see that. Uh, and what worries me right now more than anything else is that will the COVID crisis increase the difficulty that people have of getting access to education. You know, so we're at Harvard Business School, we're lucky we tend to, uh, actually people may not recognize us, we do have, we're a need blind institution, so we get people from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. But we're already seeing some students who had applied to us to matriculate this fall calling us and saying, my family circumstances have changed so much that I need to work. I, I can't even afford to take two years off to study. And when you look at who's making those calls, they are not all equal, right? I mean, we're, they're coming disproportionately from people from minority communities. Let's follow that thread for a minute. One of my other, really prior to the pandemic, um, and perhaps not as acutely felt at Harvard and Stanford, but even felt there, um, there had been a lot of que increasing questioning of the, of the ROI, the value proposition, the, the opportunity cost of, a, of an MBA. Um, and now as we look kind of post-COVID, and to your point, or, I mean, one, you know, can, I'm gonna apologize, my cat may walk in front of the screen. Um, the uh, one, can MBA programs, I mean, you know, leadership is more important than ever and they, you know, and, and HBS is the bastion of leadership. Um, do you, are you hopeful that coming out of COVID that Harvard, that HBS can be the sort of the birthplace for some of the initiatives that can actually go right at these, you know, the, the topics of inequity, the, the, the factors of inequity, the, the, the things that we are seeing. I think one of the things COVID's done negatively, positively is actually shine a bright light on inequity of access, particularly around technology. And I think people sort of kind of thought that had been solved in the K-12 system and it hasn't been at all. So I'm just curious, you know, folding all those pieces in, what do you, do you, what do you think the role, roles of business schools and leading business schools and HBS can be in coming out of this crisis and really trying to address the things that have been so aggressively identify, that COVID has actually caused us to re, you know, re-identify um, as, as being so critical. So, you know, I was in a, a call with some of our students. Uh, I'm still trying to do these virtual breakfasts at 7 a.m. in the morning, and there were people from all over the world trying to join in. And one thing that people said in the call that made me feel hopeful was that uh, everybody seemed in some ways to have been forced in this moment uh, even as weirdly we've retreated into the bubbles of our own homes, we have also had our bubbles penetrated by the reality of facing something that we feel we share with the rest of humanity. And uh, so many, many students said that for the first time, they've had their perspective uh, quite fundamentally re, you know, reimagined by, by virtue of coming out of the bubble that Harvard Business School can sometimes be for a two-year period and to, to get more connected with the realities of the world and to recognize that they have a role to play in addressing some of the inequities that many of them have thankfully been able to avoid, but they cannot now escape because it's every day in and around them in their neighborhoods. So I hope that this collective moment of being more conscious of the challenges that society faces is one that will have 
some enduring consequences. I, I must confess there's a part of me that worries that, you know, as and when this ends, will we just be so desperate to return to our everyday lives that this will just feel like a blip? And, uh, you know, if you look at the financial crisis, for example, uh, some forms of financial institutions became more prudent. But if you look at how quickly household debt and other kinds of debt returned to pre-financial crisis levels, yep. sometimes it, I worry that human beings don't learn enough from these moments that could be of benefit for the long run. But I hope in this particular occasion that these questions of structural inequity, which have become so transparent and so painfully transparent, will move us all to do something uh, more enduring. Okay, let's, 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 you know, one of our, um, obviously our, our theme here is the dawn of the uh, the age of, of online or digital learning. Um, it's uh, you know one of the few silver linings in this tragedy. Uh, has been for those of us who have been trafficking in the in innovation around digital learning, um, the fact that that it has really sort of given us a step change uh, of progress in in that area. Um, I vividly recall the first time you and I met, which was was actually pretty early, I think, into your tenure when you came to my office in Chicago, and it was actually the height of MOOC mania, um, and you were actually just really beginning to formulate your thoughts around. What, just, what was first HBX and then HBS online and, and both synchronous and asynchronous forms. Um, today, less, you know, really much less than a decade later, probably really only five years later, really, um, you, you all, HBS has served over 75,000 students. Um, I would love it if you would talk to, to those universities out there who have had to do it overnight. Um, you, you at least had five years and some pretty good resources at the time. Um, but even with time, it is a pretty radical transformation. Can you talk about the process, the leadership that was required? Um, Harvard, Harvard and Harvard Business School is probably not an easy place to change things. Um, and so I'm just curious what it was that, you know, that you saw and the impact it's had. And, um, and, and then also, I think, what impact it's had on the culture um, at, at HBS, perhaps. And then I want you to feed that back into the how, how it helped you all move um, HBS fully online in two weeks or whatever you guys did it in. So uh, first, I'll start with a confession. When I first became dean, uh, someone had asked me, uh, what do you think of online education uh, as a replacement for what we do at Harvard Business School, which is famous for the case method and uh, so much intimacy and on our campus. And... Uh, in my first year, the words that I would regret ever having uttered was not in my lifetime. <laughs> and, you know, here we are just a decade later. If I had insisted on those words, uh, we would have been in very different shape right now. So thankfully, I came to my senses uh, two years into my time when I began to recognize that uh, online learning didn't just have to be a camera on a faculty member uh, so when it just felt like a substitute for in-person education, uh, I was not very excited. Uh, but when I began to see that it could actually be something that was very engaging, this is when social networks started to show us the possibility that people can engage and create very engaging experiences with each other socially. Uh, that's when suddenly I said, you know, her business school better play. Uh, we can play and we should play not just for defensive reasons, but we should play because we can create, if we are being imaginative, just as we were imaginative in inventing the case method, 
uh, along with the law school many, many years ago, uh, that maybe we can create a different vision of online education uh, that was digital first, if you will, and yet leverage the capabilities that we had. So we made a set of choices that were very different than the MOOCs at the time. Uh, we said, you know, we're going to create an asynchronous education in which faculty members have no role to play on an ongoing basis. We're going to have a education in which from the very first day is going to be inductive learning, learning as opposed to a faculty member talking at you. So we're going to give students situations like we do in our case-based classrooms. We're going to give them a little three-minute caselet, if you will, allow them to talk to each other, find ways of creating real dialogue and engagement amongst participants, uh, that we would charge a little bit as opposed to going free, uh, but at a much lower price point than anything that we had historically thought of at the school because that would ensure that we had committed learners as opposed to people who were tourists as learners. And we were aiming for 90% of our students to have completion rates as opposed to at that time, three, 4%, which is what used to be in MOOCs. We had to create a completely different team insulated from the rest of the school. Uh, it reported to me, I had to create a budget that was, protect that was protected. Here, we just learned the lessons from our dearly departed colleague, Clay Christensen, who had always said that you can't do disruptive innovation within the mainstream of the organization. You have to build something that is in a kind of organization in parallel. And, you know, it's, it's exceeded every expectation that we had. We've built uh, education that we're proud of. We have very, very high engagement rates. In fact, our net promoter scores online are almost the same as our net promoter scores in our classroom. I like the online better myself, yep. Uh, it's been interesting though to see during this COVID moment when we have shifted our entire class as others have online as to what the feeling is. There are some things that people truly miss about being with each other in person. In fact, if anything, my own view of this is that the this moment will create simultaneously more demand for things in person and simultaneously more willingness to accept things online. So that may sound like a paradox, but I actually think that that's what's going to happen at both times. But the people who have to deliver something that's in person will have to make sure that it is genuinely special in some sense. And you, think, you had to take a lot, you had a lot of faculty who had not taught online, right? I mean, you had a had and yeah and thank god we had faculty who had taught because over the spring rig they literally became the coaches for every other faculty member who had not so we got 120 faculty members to learn how to teach online over one spring break and we have had in the last now five weeks that we've been teaching actually stunningly good response by our students and our faculty so the building a capability in advance of this crisis. We never thought when we were building this capability that this crisis would come upon us. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're never prescient until you find out that you were. So I, I will take the false credit for being prescient because I, I really had no imagination that we would get to this moment, but thank God we had that capability. So I, I correct me if I'm wrong, you have two daughters at Harvard, is that right? Uh, both have now graduated, so they oh, did go yeah. through the college, okay. and both have graduated. They're still there. I read the old article then. So, are, do you have do you have them at home or now? It... Both of them are at home. Both are working at home. Um, one how, was in San Francisco. One was in New York. How's it going? I uh, 
I mean, on the one hand, it's really wonderful to have these uh, unexpected reunions with your family, as I'm sure everybody who's on this call must have had that feeling. On the other hand, having four people try to work simultaneously from home and not, not get in each other's hair is not the easiest thing either. So uh, there are uh, occasional frictions, but by and large, we've been we felt very blessed to have this time together that was very unexpected. Wonderful. Us too. We've only, we've only got three of us, but we all we all fan out. So on a, on, a, on a serious note, the um, you're probably not going to have a lot of folks who have you know, who feel deep sympathy for Harvard's financial distress. Um, but you, you know, that having been said, you have been and as an alum, I you know get all the communication. Have been a member of the of the BDA as well. You've been very proactive uh, in your communication. You've been very transparent in your communication, really with all constituents, as far as I can tell. Um, and you've been, you know, pretty specific around, you know, revenue, you know, $115 million revenue loss, which I'm sure is just a formative number that you'll continue to develop. Um, and, and I guess a lot probably also depends on what happens in the fall. Well, now projected deficit of 20 million or so. Um, talk, would you just talk about the COVID impact on HBS? Your approach to leading in the crisis, um, you obviously had to make that quick decision to stay, for one thing, so that was a quick leadership decision. And what you think recovery looks like at the business school? So look, uh, again, as you rightly point out, uh, any the fact that we are facing economic challenges uh, at this time makes my heart go out to uh, everyone else. So I, I want to have nobody feel sorry for our business school but it is just worth recognizing that even institutions like ours are facing, uh, you know, we've never had a deficit in 30 years and we're gonna run a deficit this year, most likely. And as we look at next year, chances are we'll run an even greater deficit next year because uh, we don't think that we'll have, uh, for us, executive education is a very large part of our school in addition to uh, what we do in our MBA programs. And we've had zero people in executive education. So just people might not realize this on this call, we have, in any given year, we educate 10,000 executives. Uh, so and, the fact for four months- Majority international too, right? And, and two thirds of them international. And so our forecast for the next year is that if we get to 50% of our total enrollment in the next year, that'll be a good year, right? So, so we're expecting maybe a 50% decline because we think travel restrictions, density, all manner of things are still gonna constrain executive education going forward. So we're doing everything we can to respond to these new economic realities as much as uh, I imagine uh, every organization whose leaders are represented on this call. And at this time, you know, I have uh, been a student of leadership as much as now I get a chance to practice it. That was the field of my research. That's what I taught for many years. Uh, so I have uh, been following a set of principles that I once wrote about, which is, you know, you, you have to start by facing reality. So we knew the week before spring break that if our students all went out on spring break and came back, we'd have a crisis on our hands. So the decision to act early and shut down, uh, Harvard, you know, Harvard University made was amongst the first alongside Stanford that made the decision to say, we're not gonna have students return to campus. It was a very painful decision at that time Half our campus wanted to really come back and the other half didn't. So you had to face reality. So I think the first job is to face reality. The second is to be truthful and transparent throughout. I, I think people know when you're trying to hide embarrassing details and you just have to be clear with people. 
Uh, I think you have to rely at this time even more on your team. It's There's a certain sense in which you think that you can do it, but I think you have to really rely much more on decentralized decision-making and, and leadership. Uh, yet you have to re- lead visibly. I think this is a time when leaders need to be seen by everyone in their organization. So I have made sure that through communications, through calls like this, I'm as available to every person in the organization. In fact, if anything, I think reaching to the front lines of the organization at a time like this is even more important than it would be otherwise. I think you've got to make hard decisions. For example, uh, you know, we've made the hard decision that we will end up opening in the fall. You will end up fall. I had not seen that formal. Okay. Uh, so, you know, because in some way, shape or form, and whether that's online or in some other way, we'd have right. to probably open in the fall. And I think that as you work in the crisis to do whatever you can in the short term, it is very important to still keep your eye on what can you learn that will be useful for the long term. So we have been, we in fact, created a separate group right now that is taking what's happening right now and saying, what are we learning today that will be valuable in the long term? And I've just realized that you actually almost have to, just like to create Harvard Business School Online, we had to create a separate group. I've needed to create a separate group of people who can who have enough bandwidth to focus on the long term because everybody else is so scrambling to just deliver what they can uh, today. So those are just some principles that we've been following from a leadership standpoint. Our, our view is that coming out of this, the world will be different. And we will need to be different. Uh, and we will have to make sure that we don't don't view this as just a momentary thing, which, oh, you know, we just can't wait till things get back to normal. On the one hand, that is true, and we hope that some things will come back to normal, but it'd be a shame if we didn't find a way to have some enduring change as a result of this as well. Well, bravo, your, your communication has been fantastic. Uh, one last question as we're, we're running up against the next troop here, this has been fantastic. Um, you know, I love talking to people about you and, you know, how you weave your own personal stories, you know, how, how important that is to you as you, as you think about and, and deliver your own leadership style. And that, um, that phrase of your father's that business is an extraordinary force for good. How, how do you feel as you're coming out of COVID? How do you feel about that, you know, tenant in your life or that, that, that plank in your life that your dad gave you? Um, and as you come out of the leadership of Harvard Business School, um, uh, how do you feel about that more reinforced, less, uh, et cetera? I actually think that, that my, if I'm hopeful about something, I, I feel that in the last um, decade, especially coming out of the financial crisis, business began to be more conscious of the role it needs to play to address not just the old dictum, which is a good business makes a decent profit decently, which was the first founding motto of our business school, which was, you know, the job of the school is to train business leaders who can make a decent profit decently. And I want to underline that second part, which is we want to make sure that from the very start that it was done ethically. But I think now people are not just looking for business leaders who do no harm. They're looking for business leaders who are going to be more proactive in solving society's great problems, whether it's inequality, whether it's the environment, whether it's creating more resilience to the kinds of situations that we have right now. And frankly, we've seen uh, business in some ways has been found embarrassed in some matters. Like if you look at supply chain failures and 
business's inability to deliver either tests or other things on a timely basis. I think some of it is administrative failure, some of it is business failure. Uh, but businesses also recognize how much it can do in a positive way, in a positive way when it rallies to do these things. If you just look at what Walmart has done in terms of, even at this time, uh, going out and hiring hundreds, you know, hundred thousand plus people to make sure that they can create employment the way they can. So, I am actually very optimistic that one of the things that will change as a result of this crisis is that what was already a nascent movement, which is how can business play a proactive role in addressing some of society's things, uh, real challenges, the business roundtable's declaration to move away from just shareholder primacy to talk about all constituencies, this should give momentum to all of that. So I always entered business, as you know, Deborah, with this thing that my father, who grew up in a village without electricity, had at one point the great privilege of running one of India's great electricity companies. So he used to always find enormous personal meaning that through his business, he was not just running a business, but he was bringing electricity that he knew people needed in their lives to allow themselves to have good lives. Uh, I have always been inspired by that, which is to say that I have the great privilege of uh, educating every year as Dean of Harvard Business School, hundreds of MBAs, you know, a thousand MBAs and 10,000 executives who could go out in the world and find in some way, some ability to uh, find that passion of doing something that is going to make the lives of people in the world better. And I think this moment will allow us to do more of that. And I'm very happy for that, actually. Perfect. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to have you. Um, I'm sure if everyone else has enjoyed it as much as I have. And um, I will look forward to the, to the next moves. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. And uh, I wish you again a quick and wonderful recovery. And it's great to see you. And thank you all for listening to me. Take care. Be safe. Be well. This fireside chat is brought to you by the 2020 ASU GSV Summit. September 29th through October 1st at the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego, California. The ASU GSV Summit wishes to thank our sponsor partners, including Google Cloud, Kaplan, and Pearson. Please visit asugsvsummit.com for more information.